Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, I have one announcement that I'm sure you all have all noticed and that is the lost and found is sitting out in the middle of the fellowship hall so that everybody will take the time to stumble over it and take a look to see. See, that's the trouble with making announcements like that at the beginning of class. Ten minutes from now, neither you nor I will remember that. So we ought to have announcements at the end of class. Maybe that's a new idea. But then I have to remember to make the announcements when it's over with. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's... uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace, your grace that provided us with a so great salvation that began at the cross, extends through our spiritual life, and then will culminate with our absence from this body and being face-to-face with you. Father, your grace has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Your your grace has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and your grace has given us a completed canon of Scripture that gives us the wisdom we need in order to live life uh, in the midst of a fallen world saturated with the thinking of, of Satan and operating on arrogance. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, we might to be able to be stimulated in our thinking, that we might think as you think, and that we might be able to learn to reflect upon the issues in our lives, not from the immediate reaction of our sin nature, but from the, uh, but from a position of strength where we understand uh, the the dynamics of life in time and where you are where you are taking us. And Father, we continue to pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray that you would. Just restrain the forces of evil that seek to uh, shackle us to the chains of of, uh, tyranny and taxation and to seek to eliminate national sovereignty and all of the other uh, many things that continue to press upon the government of this land. And we pray that we might continue to send forth missionaries and that we might continue to support Israel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. We missed last week because we were reminded that God once destroyed and judged the earth by water. And he promised never to do it again, although there are portions of the earth that are still judged and destroyed by water, like this stretch on Beltway 8 out here. For those who are listening and live streaming and wonder what happens every now and then and why we don't have class uh, we need to just make it clear, maybe a few people will learn something, that uh, these two 
streets, cross streets, both south and north of us, tend to flood. And there were some of us who had an extended time of fellowship one night about a year and a half ago until almost midnight because we couldn't go anywhere. And we were, we were stranded down here, so we're all a little gun-shy over that. And so we tend to be a little uh, more careful uh, than not when it looks like it's going to be bad. And I, t- I almost, I was just, couldn't make that decision the last week. And I got an email from Doug, and he heard, he had heard the same forecast I had. And so we decided, okay, let's go ahead and cancel. And that was at 5 o'clock, and it's always dangerous to cancel class three hours early because you think it might rain. And at that point, the radar didn't show anything to our west. So I was hoping against hope that I would have made a good decision. And at 7 o'clock, I turned on the radar, booted up my computer and looked at the radar, and it just looked like Noah's flood was approaching from the west. I said, thank God. And then I called Doug and said, you better get home. because in about 30 minutes, you're going to be flooded. And he was too far away, so he had to fight his way home through the water. But uh, that's why we cancel class on occasion. People up north can't uh, drive when it gets real snowy. People down here just don't know how to drive when it gets wet. So everybody has their problems. Well, speaking of judgment by water, that's where we ended last time, talking about Noah in verse 7. By faith... Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according uh, to faith. And I retranslated that. By faith, Noah, after he was divinely warned concerning things not seen, uh, respectfully or basically out of the fear of God, that's the sense of that word in the Greek, prepared an ark for the deliverance. It's not a justification salvation there. It's physical deliverance from the flood. Prepared an ark for the salvation of his house, through which God judged the world. The judgment was the fact that Noah's faith in building the ark was a witness, a testimony to the lack of faith in everyone else in the world. So it was through that God judged the world. And then that last phrase completes the thought earlier related to Noah. Noah became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. Now, that is why we believe that justification is by faith alone, and the word for justification is the same word that is used for righteousness. This is not talking about Phase one, justification and salvation. The Bible talks about three different stages or phases of salvation. Stage one is when we first believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If you're an Old Testament believer, you believe that God would provide a Savior through the seed of the woman. And that, in that instant that one trusts in God for salvation, trusting Christ for salvation in the New Testament, that instant, a person receives the imputation in the church age, receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness and is declared to be just. That is the classic doctrine of justification by faith alone. But we also have a post-salvation faith related to phase two, which is being saved from the power of sin. 
delivered from the power of sin, and so that is an ongoing faith. Uh, Paul talks in Romans 1 about going from faith to faith, and that has the idea from saving, justifying faith to sanctifying faith. And so that is the idea here that Noah, who was already justified because, according to Genesis 6, he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord, he was already justified, phase one, building the ark and trusting God and and his revelation about judgment, building the ark and all of that was related to his spiritual life, his spiritual growth, uh, part of his faith rest drill to believe the promise of God. And as a result of trusting God, he grew and matured spiritually, and on that basis he became an heir of righteousness. And this word heir of righteousness, I guess I don't have the, let me turn the, screen the projectors on here the word air there is the greek word kleronomos a word that we have we have seen before i guess those are coming on it takes them a minute to warm up uh, kleronomos which means air and that brings in the entire doctrine of airship and inheritance which becomes an important theme as we go through Hebrews chapter 11. It's only mentioned a couple of times. The words related to heir and inheritance are mentioned here in verse 7 and again in verse 8. Another word that is that we'll look at in a little while is the word promise. Promise has to do with future fulfillment of something. A promise is given as a security, as a pledge of something that God will do in the, in the future, and that is related to inheritance. So, so these three words uh, related to inheritance and heirship and promise are all interconnected, especially within within uh, uh, this uh, epistle to the Hebrews. I concluded last time by pointing out that there are two distinct categories of heirship for the church-age believer, and we see them identified in Romans 8.17. If children then heirs, that is, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and the way that is normally punctuated uh, with the commas there, it looks as if heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are what is being described by heirs. Uh, if children heirs, uh, and as if they're the same, talking about the same thing, as if those two categories, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, as if those are synonymous but they're not. Remember, there's no punctuation. There was no little M dash or N dash in the original Greek. There was no uh, comma. The original Greek just, in fact, you had two kinds of manuscripts. You had uncials, which were all capital letters, and they didn't even break words at the end of a line uh, with a hyphen or by syllable. They just broke them wherever they, whenever they reached the end of the line, that's when they stopped writing, and then they started on the next line. So it was it, it was easy for them to read because that was what they were used to. And if you were reading English that way, you wouldn't have any trouble either because you know the English language and and it would make uh, it would make sense to you. But when we come to it as uh, second language learners, it's difficult sometimes to identify punctuation. Most of the time, punctuation is clear in Greek by syntax. That was the beauty of Greek syntax: was it made the the punctuation clear. They didn't need to use commas and periods and all of these other things because the 
the syntax itself would indicate uh, how something should be read. But on occasion, that it's it's ambiguous, and so you have to use a little theology and comparison of Scripture with Scripture in order to figure some things out. Now, speaking of comparing Scripture with Scripture, I'm going to take a little Anakaluthan now. You know what an Anakaluthan is? It's a rabbit trail. There is a video going around, and I have had, and when I get at least 12 or 15 or 20 people send me a video, then I have to stop sometimes and comment about it. But there's a video going around, and it's some preacher somewhere who is trying to make this identification that Barack Obama, on the basis of his name, is the Antichrist. And he takes a passage out of Matthew, I believe, where Jesus says he saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. And he takes the word for lightning, and then he finds the Hebrew word for lightning, and then he goes back and he compares the sound of that word to uh, a word back in Isaiah chapter 14. And that it just illustrates the wrong way to compare Scripture with Scripture. There's a right way and a wrong way, and that's a fallacious way. It is akin to saying that in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul said that, Husbands, you are to love your wives like your own body. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said that he beat his body into submission. That is not a justification for beating your wife, men. <laughs> that is the illegitimate use of comparing Scripture with Scripture. So we have to have some, some good sense when we do these things, and there's always somebody who's trying to make the Bible mean something that it doesn't mean just because they, can, they don't have enough theological framework to figure, figure things out or enough training. But there are times when you look at a passage like this, and it could be legitimately the grammar could go one of two ways, and so you have to ask the question, well, is there something going on theologically here that would c cause me to punctuate it differently? And what you see is that if heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are identical and synonymous, then that is followed by a conditional clause that if we suffer with him, that would make heirship dependent or conditional, conditioned upon suffering. So if you don't suffer for Jesus, then you can't be an heir. And that would indicate a work salvation. So that would suggest that you have to not only believe in Jesus but suffer with him. And that would lead to all sorts of, and manners of asceticism and probably has over the years and self-flagellation and monasticism and all the things that go along with that. And so internally it looks like, there might be a problem with that punctuation, and when you compare Scripture with Scripture and look at the doctrine of inheritance, you realize that this must be two uh, separate types of punctuation. Now, here's a little exercise that I've always enjoyed this little sentence. Woman without her man is nothing. Now, if you are a woman, you are probably um, going to punctuate it this way. You're going to add a couple of com commas and punctuated woman without her, man is nothing. So what you're saying there is man is just so dependent upon a woman that without her, he's just useless. And that, unfortunately, is true for some men. Then you have the th way most men will punctuate the sentence. 
that woman without her man is nothing, that women just can't make it without their man. So the comma can really change the entire meaning of a sentence. And so the placement of the commas in Romans 8.17 have really set us in the wrong direction. And we should add a comma after the first God. That yellow comma after God really doesn't show up that well, does it? But you should insert a comma after heirs of God. That is one category of heirship that's common to every believer. And then the second category, joint heirs of Christ, should not have a comma following Christ, why I put a red X there, because it is that joint heirship with Christ that is conditioned upon suffering with him. So the first category, the, the, the heirship of God, is common to every believer, that there are certain things that every believer in heaven will possess in common. We will all have a resurrection body. We will all have not, none of us will have a sin nature. We will all be in a place where there is no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. We are, we will all have many other things, I'm sure, in common. But there are some things that we will have in distinction. There will be some believers who have a greater capacity for enjoying where they are and what's going on in heaven simply because they studied the word, applied the word, grew to maturity here in this life, and so they enter heaven with a greater capacity for enjoying heaven. They will have, uh, consequently, because they have a greater capacity because of their knowledge and understanding of Scripture, because they graduated at the head of the class during their uh, boot camp training in, in this life, they will have uh, a better pick of assignments and responsibilities and uh, in their ruling and reigning with Christ during the millennial kingdom. So suffering with Christ is not talking about necessarily going through a lot of hardship and giving up and suffering. I have become acquainted in the last couple of years with the fact that there are some people who just, whenever they hear the word suffering, they just always think of somebody who's just, oh, life's just so terrible and it's so bad and I'm just suffering all the time. And that's not the idea in the scriptures at all. Over in Hebrews, as we've studied, Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. It has to do with the fact that living in the cosmic system, living in the devil's world, we're going to go through certain situations and circumstances of adversity where we are going to have to trust the Lord. And we may not even think of it as suffering per se. We may not think that we're giving anything up because of our divine viewpoint which uh, shapes the way we interpret those circumstances. But any time we go through those kinds of decisions and we're living in the devil's world and things don't go the way they should or they ought or God originally intended, that is suffering. And so when we are believers, we will suffer with Christ. But it doesn't mean you're going to be burned alive at the stake, and it doesn't mean you're going to be thrown into an arena with a bunch of ravenous lions. It doesn't mean somebody is going to uh, tie you between a couple of trees and saw you in half like they did with Isaiah and all of the other uh, wonderful ways in which people down through the ages decided to uh, torture believers. It just means that you're going to be living in the devil's world trying to apply the word to the circumstances of life. So there's two categories of inheritance that are established there, one that is 
true for every believer, and one that just comes to those believers who are growing and advancing in Christ. Now we come to our next section, which begins a section dealing with Abraham and and Sarah. We deal with Abraham in verses 8, 9, and 10. We deal with uh, Sarah in verse, verses 11 and 12. And then we'll come back and deal with Abraham again when we get down to uh, down to verse 17, and there is a common theme or thread that runs through verses 8 uh, through 16. But we'll just look at these first three verses, 8, 9, and 10, to give us uh, an orientation to what is coming. The focus is on Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, key word. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, so they're included in the uh, whole act of faith here, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So what you ought to do if you are taking notes in your Bible, is you ought to circle the word heir, an heir of righteousness, back in verse 7, and connect it to inheritance in verse 8, and connect that again with the word heirs in verse 9, and the word promise. And that shows you the thread, the idea that is being developed by the writer here, as he's focusing on the fact that it was their, their, their faith, their sanctifying faith, faith their, their spiritual life faith, that focused them on future realities indicated by the promise of God. So they were living their lives in time, day by day, and their decisions were shaped by the fact that they understood God's plan and where they were headed eventually. Verse 10, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then there is a connection of that verse to verse 16, which reads, But now they desire a better that is a heavenly, and then the word country isn't there in the, in the original. It's just a heavenly destiny, a heavenly uh, future. Now they desire a better that is a heavenly uh, destiny. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so that's the connection between verse 10, where you can circle the word city, and verse 16, where you can circle the word city and then connect the circles. So that ties this theme. They understand that there is a future destiny. Now, how well they understood, how much revelation they had related to the uh, New Jerusalem, which is what I think the new new. Uh, the city speaks of. It is an understanding of their future destiny uh, in living with, uh, living with God. And that shaped their uh, decisions in time. So the focus here is going to be on the external evidence that com- in terms of their obedience to specific revelation that comes because they believe that revelation and because they believe that which could not be measured, quantified, uh, made visible, was not known empirically or discovered empirically. The only evidence of that was their obedience and the impact that that had, the way it changed 
how they lived. And that takes us back to the main theme that we're illustrating in this chapter, which begins in began in 11.1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, the three words that I've had, had you highlight or circle in these passages are kleronomos, which means air, a kleronomia, which is an, an uh, adjectival form, or another, a noun, a related noun, uh, which means inheritance or possession. And then the third word is, is uh, not the word promise, we'll get to that in a minute, but the word uh, mis- Thapodotes, misthapodotes, which means a God is a rewarder uh, of those who uh, seek Him. That is at the end of verse um, verse six. Those who come to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It's an interesting word. It is a combination of the word for for a gift or, I mean, excuse me, a reward or a wage, plus the verb for, for giving. And so those were brought together in a word indicating the giver of rewards or, or a rewarder. And so the focus here begins to, uh, begins to take shape on inheritance and rewards. So what I want to do tonight is take a uh, rerun through inheritance as possession, go back. I added a few things and uh, revised a few things, clarified a few things. That's always a process that you go through as a as a pastor, because you, the more you study, the more you learn, the more you shape and refine your own understanding of what's going on inside the, inside the scriptures. And so, even though you go back and you teach a doctrine. And it's about 95% the same. It's the other 5% that gets clarified a little bit, and everybody needs to hear things over and over a few times. And there's always a few new people. Number one, we have to understand that in the Old Testament, inheritance referred to the ownership of property. It's always related to this concept of property and possession. And so you can't separate inheritance from individual property ownership. Now, I'm not going to go there tonight, but that has some really important implications for economic theory, that there are those who over the years have tried to work out a biblical view of economics. And I believe that the Bible is very clear. Now, it's not going to tell you what you should invest in in the stock market tomorrow or when you should get out of the stock market, but it is the Scripture is going to give you the broad general principles of wisdom in dealing with money and how a, as individuals and how nations should, and it just recognizes the validity of certain things, such as private ownership of property. And private ownership of property is at the very core of the whole idea of liberty and freedom because if somebody owns property, then they have the right to use or dispose of that property in the way that they see fit. Now, what adds to what we normally think of as a free market view of of property ownership is that in the scriptures, all property is ultimately owned by the federal government. No, oh, sorry, wrong Wrong group. All property is owned by God. 
and it is on loan to man, so that men are managers, are stewards of that which is given to God, and they have a derivative ownership within a, within a culture or a national entity. And that is where you bring in the idea of the first divine institution, which is volition or individual responsibility, that each person is ultimately responsible to God for how he uses that which uh, the resources that God has given him, whether in terms of physical talents or spiritual gifts or, or finances or money or whatever else uh, they might have. So the idea of inheritance, the very idea of inheritance in the Bible and that we are called heirs of God and heirs of Christ really implies, I mean, what's embedded in all of that terminology is the concept of uh, individual ownership of property, and the property is to be passed down from one generation to another. Now, one of the interesting things that you also find in the Scriptures is that there's no such thing as property tax, because property tax destroys the accumulation of wealth, and that was part of the purpose of property, is to provide the resources for families so that as they built something down through the generations, then the product of their work and their labor would uh, provide for uh, provide for the generations of that particular family. And so property in the Mosaic Code, because the property there is, has a special uh, significance in that it is its property in the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they could only enjoy the blessings of that land if they were living in obedience to God's commandments. And if God, and if they were disobedient, then God would remove them from the land and God would bring judgment upon the land and they would not enjoy the fruit or the produce of the land. But the land itself was not to be moved around and sold. They weren't to sell it to non-Jews. They weren't to sell it to other, other clans. It had to stay within the clans and within the, within the, uh, within the families and the tribes in order to protect that property and the wealth to be passed down from generation to generation. So two things that do run counter to a biblical view of economics are property tax as well as inheritance tax. And uh, that just hasn't entered into the thinking of a lot of a lot of people today. Now, that doesn't mean that you have the right to go out and not pay your property tax or not pay inheritance tax, because that isn't a command in the Scripture. It is simply principles that God has revealed. It used to amaze me. I knew about three guys back in the 70s who decided uh, uh, the income tax was immoral, and so they were going to quit paying taxes. And... You know, that just flies in the whole face of what Jesus said in terms of render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. The government of any nation may do foolish things, but foolish and unwise things are not necessarily sinful, and they are not necessarily forcing a citizen in a nation to do something that is sinful. There's a difference in Scripture between something that is wise or foolish versus uh, sinful or righteous. There may be overlap, but they're not uh, identical categories. The illustration of this comes out of a, a situation in uh, Numbers chapter uh, 36, which deals with the daughters of a man named Zelophehad. Just say that over and over about six times real fast and see if you can do it. 
uh, the property that belonged to Zelophehad, who was in the tribe of Menashe, or Manasseh as we anglicize it, in Numbers 36, 2. And what happened was that Zelophehad had died, and all he had was daughters, and the land was supposed to be passed down through the son, primogenitor. And, of course, all of the sexists are going to, and those who have been influenced by uh, modern contemporary views on women, are going to rise up and say, oh, how terrible that is. And it's always interesting. The Bible doesn't take a negative view of women, and it doesn't take an exclusive view of women, and it doesn't assert an unreasonable or tyrannical view of of male authority either. It only looks that way if you're thinking in terms of a pagan, uh, a pagan view. And the way God handles this uh, in terms of securing that, that land through and for the daughters and to stay in the tribe shows the high view that scripture has of women, even though the land was to be passed down, uh, through, through the men. And it was ideas like that that were picked up by the founding fathers of this country because they understood that at the very core of a nation was a family and a family unit, and they really looked at it at the nation as a as a as a collection of families. This is why you had men, only men and property owners who had the right to vote. It wasn't because they were minimizing women, which is what you will normally hear. It is because they, they were looking at families that voted, and the father was the head of the family, and the father is the one who would cast the vote, but it was a family representation. But as we got into the era of Jeffersonian and then Jacksonian democracy, where you broke things down more in terms of individuals, then those ideas shifted, and so the emphasis went on every individual having a right, and then eventually got rid of the, they got rid of the property ownership. And that was there because, again, their understanding was that property was at the core of individual uh, freedom, and prop- property rights, and property ownership. So you see how the mentality, the thinking of the founding fathers was shaped by a lot of ideas that were developed uh, by uh, theologians and students of the Word and the Puritans especially in the 16th and 17th century. Of course, in our world, if you just mention something as having come from the Puritans, that automatically makes it a bad idea. But that's only because uh, divine viewpoint has been thrown out the window. So here's how it's described in Leviticus 36, 2, and then skipping to verses 7, 8, 9. He said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance. And there's that word, nechala, meaning a heritage, a possession, literally, by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded, that is, talking about Moses, uh, my Lord, lowercase l, was commanded by the Lord, Yahweh, to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. And then verse 7, So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance or the possession of the tribe of his fathers. Now that that's something that is... That's what I'm saying. Uh, when you just as another comment on developing a biblical view of economics, this doesn't fit the kind of thing you would read in uh, in von Mises or in um, 
one of the other schools of economics, of free market economy, because those economic systems are really derived autonomously through experience, through empiricism, rather than going to something like the Word of God. Uh, They may have a lot of things in them that are true, but they're not necessarily one-to-one with with Scripture. So here you have something that would be very different from your standard approach to free market uh, economics or uh, dealing with property ownership. The property, the tribal allotments always stayed within, within the tribes. Then in verse 8 we read, And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel each may possess the inheritance of the fathers. Thus no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. The point was that the daughters of Zelophehad had to marry within the tribe of, of Manasseh, and then the land would stay within that tribe and would be uh, raised and, and utilized for an inheritance and would stay in the the lineage, the clan lineage of, of Zelophehad. So from this we see that the idea of inheritance is related to the idea of property, possession, and ownership. These are all interchangeable ideas. So an, uh, an inheritance that you receive is something that is yours. It is private ownership of that, that property, that inheritance. And in the Old Testament, it did not necessarily mean that a person had to die for that to be passed on. That's what we normally think of as inheritance, is that someone dies and then their their descendants, usually their children, uh, become the heirs and the property is transferred that way. But nobody died to give this land to Israel. So the core idea it doesn't have anything to do with a transferal of property, but it's the ownership of property. We also see, and this is a key point, that certain categories of people lived in the land. They lived in Israel. They lived in the promised land, but they did not own the land. They did not have an inheritance in the land. They did not have a possession in the land. Uh, the scripture talks about the sojourners, uh, the strangers. These would be the, uh, in the, in the old King James, they called them aliens. But lest we confuse that with E.T., these were the documented uh, immigrants that came in across the borders that were not tribal descendants, like, like Ruth was a, a, from Moab. And uh, there were others that came into the land who were Gentiles, but then became uh, associated, identified with Israel through, through marriage. So you had sojourners and strangers, but you also have Levites. Levites did not have a possession uh, in the land, and passages you can look at are Exodus 12:48 to 49, and Numbers 18:20 and 24. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in the land, but they never owned it. They never had a possession there. Yeah, it was all, all future. Uh, Hebrews 11:13, Genesis 21:33 and 35:27. So just to look at the one related to the Levites, uh, Numbers 18, 20, and 24, 
Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance. There's that word nahal again for inheritance or possession. You shall have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion. And there the shifts to a different word, helic. These are the two words commonly used in uh, inheritance lang- language and inheritance documents. I shall be your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And then Numbers 18.24, for the tithe of the sons of Israel, that is one of the three different 10% offerings that the Israelites gave, for the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. See, one tithe went to taking care of the uh, of the temple, etc., and the other, another tithe went to taking care of the Levites because the Levites were the bureaucrats in the theocracy. And so it was to take care of the Levites and to provide for them. So God said that one of the tithes went to the Levites for their possession, even though they didn't own any land, they were taken care of through one of the tithes. Then in Hebrews 11.13, we read, These all died in faith. That's referring to, uh, this is 11.13, this refers to uh, all of the preceding ones, uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promise. So they never saw it. Abraham and Sarah never owned a piece of land other than their grave, the cave of Machpelah. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. So they are focusing on a future reality that shaped their present uh, thinking. They were living in light of eternity. They embraced them, that is, the promises, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Uh, so they never actually owned the land. Genesis twenty-one thirty-three: Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. That was they used the land, they lived there, but they had no ownership there. And in the background, you see modern Beersheba and a tamarisk tree, not the one that Abraham planted. Just Wanted to make sure that nobody got confused on that. Genesis thirty-five twenty-seven. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham had Isaac had sojourned. There's that word. They 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 just were sojourners. They they traveled through the area. They were not. Uh, they didn't dwell there. They didn't have ownership rights there. Now this has application in point number five. Even in the millennial kingdom, not all who dwell there will possess it. Not all who dwell there will possess it. Believers who are mature, mature believers who receive rewards are said to be, uh, will have ownership or inheritance in the kingdom. But there will be believers who lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. They'll be there. They won't have uh, an inheritance in the kingdom. That's what those passages in Galatians, uh, I mean, First uh, Corinthians six, uh, I think it's seven through nine, and Galatians five, um, eighteen and nineteen, where it talks about the works of the flesh. That those who do these things or those that practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean they won't go to heaven. It means they won't have an inheritance in the kingdom. So, and 1 Corinthians 15.50 states, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
Well, what about all those Jews that survived at the end of the tribulation to go into the millennium? See, they're in mortal bodies, flesh and blood. So they're not going to be heirs of the kingdom either. They are going to be living in the kingdom, but they do not have a ownership or possession or, or inheritance within the kingdom. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit uh, the imperishable. And point number six, inheritance was given positionally or potentially on the basis of grace. But the realization and enjoyment of the inheritance was a reward of obedience. Now, where do we get that? Well, first of all, in inheritance in the sense of its being potential or positional, that's related to the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, this land that is bordered by the Mediterranean and the Euphrates and from uh, the Sinai Peninsula all the way up to the upper upper Euphrates, up into what is modern Syria, that is going to be your your land. So when Moses brought, uh, or Joshua actually brought the uh, Israelites into the promised land, they had to take control of that land, and they did that through through battle. They never fully, though, conquered all of that land. It was never fully under their uh, under under their control, but it was theirs positionally because of God's promise to Abraham. But the conditions for enjoying the blessings of the land were laid out in the Mosaic law. And that God says, if you obey me, then I will bless you in all of these many ways, and the wild animals will be, uh, will be destroyed, and the land will produce uh, abundantly, and uh, there will be plenty of rain in its season, and all of these things. So it connects, and that's some of the most interesting passages for you to think about in Scripture. It connects climate. It connects uh, the uh, ravages of wild animals. It connects uh, economics. It connects agricultural productivity to spiritual obedience. Now, see, no scientist, no climatologist, no matter how many degrees he has from MIT, is ever going to be able to quantify that relationship. All he can measure is what it, what can be seen and what can be studied. Uh, no one who is a member of any uh, wildlife management group can can quantify or qualify the relationship between spirituality and the presence of uh, dangerous and ravenous animals. I always think it's funny that that in the Mosaic Law, God promised the Israelites that if they were obedient, then he would remove the lions and the bears and the wolves, all of these animals, these predatory animals, from the land. And that if they were disobedient as part of, I think it was the second, um, second cycle of discipline, that if they were disobedient, then those animals would multiply and return. And so we have various groups in the United States that just go out and try to, you know, reintroduce uh, wolves and bears into uh, areas that are pretty much civilized and pretty much uh, inhabited by people. I know when I was in Connecticut, they were reintroducing bears into areas there, but they were endangered species, so you couldn't do anything. I mean, if there was a bear in your backyard, uh, you could... Not you, you just had to call animal control, and they couldn't do anything. There was a guy about a mile from me who uh, went over to North Stonington Bible Church, and he heard a ruckus outside, and he went out, looked outside, and there was a 
brown bear on top of his rabbit hutch, trying to figure out how to get to those little bunnies. And so he, like a good, obedient citizen, called animal control. So the animal control guy came out to do what he could do. He pulled up as close to the bear as he could, turned on his bright lights, honked his horn, and turned on his siren. And the bear just ignored him. But that's all he could do. I remember the first week we were in Connecticut, there was a news report about a subdivision that was built outside of, outside of Hartford. And they didn't realize it, but they had built this, this subdivision on the breeding ground of an endangered species, the eastern diamondback rattle. And so spring was coming. That was in May and June of the year. And the sun would come out and heat up the asphalt driveways. And these big, long, fat eastern diamondback rattlers would crawl out on those warm driveways and sun themselves in the afternoon. But you couldn't kill them because they were a protected species. And I remember my wife looking at me and she said, we're from Texas. You see a rattlesnake out there. You kill it and figure out what kind it is later. (laughs) We've just gotten silly, but that's the kind of uh, reversal of values that you get when you operate on human viewpoint is you don't understand concepts like, and you just think it's terrible when when the Bible says that we are to exercise dominion over the planet. Then, Because in their view, we're the... We're the evolutionary uh, enemy. So we have this difference between positional giving of something that is ours positionally or potentially in terms of rewards and the realization and enjoyment of those rewards or inheritance because of obedience and spiritual growth. That's not legalism. Funniest thing in the world, people get all kinds of strange ideas about what legalism is. Legalism isn't standing up for values. Legalism isn't saying this is right and this is wrong. Legalism isn't saying, you know, we are a, and this always comes across with with, uh, some Christian schools, saying legalism isn't we are a Christian school and we believe that our responsibility as uh, as, uh, substitute parents is to continue to reinforce the discipline and training that parents would have, and we take that seriously, so we're going to have strict moral and behavioral guidelines for our students. That's not legalism. Legalism is when you say the observance of those uh, standards is what gets you into heaven, that the observance of those standards is what uh, gives you approbation before God. That's legalism. Legalism is saying I get grace because I live in obedience. That's what legalism is. Legalism isn't having a strict code of a strict moral code of conduct. And even if that strict moral code of conduct goes beyond scripture, uh, having a strict moral code of conduct is not in and of itself legalism. Uh, in fact, I heard today about a pastor who has a uh, has a problem, but he's got a person in his church who, when he wants to assert his authority over her arena of operation, she says that's just being legalistic. You know, legalism is just adding, saying that some kind of works is the basis for God's grace in salvation. That's what legalism is. And we've often gotten that confused, and that's just erroneous. Obedience isn't legalism. 
obedience is what the uh, is authority orientation to the word of God and to the authority of the Father. I have passages such as Joshua 14:89 Nevertheless my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear but I contrast follow the Lord my God fully so Moses swore on that day surely this is Caleb talking I believe so Moses swore on that day saying surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance uh, to you and to your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God uh, fully. So this is a reference in verse 8, a reference back to the obedience of Caleb and Joshua when they went into the land and how everybody else got afraid because there were giants in the land and walled cities and lots of pagans. So they uh, quaked in fear. So obedience is necessary under the filling of the Spirit by grace as the basis for inheritance and rewards based on spiritual growth. Point seven, the possession of the land, therefore, was conditioned on obedience. That's why Israel's not in the land today, not in the way they were in the Old Testament. It's the beginning of something, but it's not, it's not there because of obedience. Therefore, possession could be lost. As seen in the case of Zelophehad's daughters there, possession could be lost. Genesis 17:14. but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. So if you weren't circumcised, you couldn't own land. Numbers 14.24, But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. It's related to obedience. Uh, point eight, the entire Exodus generation had become God's firstborn son, Exodus 4.22-23. That means they're saved for the most part. But the entire generation, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, forfeited the inheritance due the firstborn. See, it was theirs provisionally, but because of disobedience, they lost it, though they remained saved. In Exodus 4.22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So they are viewed, though not, this doesn't mean every single individual was as yet saved, but they are viewed as a saved generation. Point number nine, though not all have an inheritance in the land, all have God as their inheritance and possession. That is, all church-age believers. We all have God as an inheritance and possession. In the Old Testament, all uh, all Israelites had an had an inheritance of God, but they only some had an inheritance in the land. Levites didn't, and others didn't. Uh, Psalm seventy-three twenty-six: My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. That's that inheritance word. Same word we have for like meros for share or portion of an inheritance in the in the New Testament. Psalm one hundred nineteen fifty-seven. The Lord is my portion. He's the share of my inheritance. I promise to keep thy words. Psalm 142.5, I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge, my portion, that is my share of inheritance in the land of the living. So for the church-age believer, point 10, Christ is given ownership of all things, and the believer shares in that ownership as a joint heir in Christ only as we mature as believers. This is the why inheritance is such a key element within uh, within Hebrews. It takes us back to Hebrews one 
1 through 4, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. We, our heirship is joint heirship with him. And then Hebrews 1, 3, uh, and 4 in verse 4 states, having become so much better than the angels, that is Jesus in his ascension, and session at the right hand of the Father, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So from the very outset, in those first four verses of Hebrews in that prelude, sets this as a major theme for uh, for the epistle, that it's focusing on encouraging the believer not to lose his inheritance, not to sacrifice it by giving up, by not persevering, by not sticking it out unto, uh, all the way to the end. So that brings us back to Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, this refers to God's initial command to Abraham when he was still known as Abram. And he is living in Ur of the Chaldees over in Babylon in the southern part of Iraq today. And God came to Abraham and told him to leave his home, leave his family, and that he would go to a place that God would show him. God says, I'm not telling you yet. So he didn't even have an idea whether he was going east or west or where he was going. Uh, he had no idea. And he simply had to trust God to take him in the right direction. Now, when you look at this verse, it's interesting to analyze it in the original. The main clause is Abraham obeyed. That's the emphasis. In English, it starts off by faith, as it does in the Greek, and then the main idea is Abraham obeyed, and then uh, when he was called to go out. So the focus is on his obedience. That's, it. That's the emphasis. By faith, Abraham obeyed. So obedience isn't legalism. Obedience is what you do when you are trusting God. You do what he says to do. So obedience is not legalism. Legalism is thinking that obedience somehow uh, merits uh, favor with God, and, and that's the basis for salvation. So by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to leave the land uh, where he was living and that he would receive another land as an inheritance. So Genesis 12.1 says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So he had no idea where he was headed. Just pack your bags, get in the car, and take off, and I will eventually tell you where you're headed. Now this then becomes the basis for the Abrahamic covenant, which had three components, as we've studied before. Uh, land, the promise of a specific piece of real estate, seed, that the promise of the seed of the woman would do, do, uh uh, step on the head of the seed of the serpent back in Genesis 3.15, that this seed promise would continue through Abraham and that that would be a blessing to the entire world. 
Well, of course, as we've studied, each of these is further developed. The land covenant in, in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant expands the seed provision in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant expands the uh, blessing provision in Jeremiah chapter uh, 31. But the focus that we're going to see here in Hebrews 11 in the uh, next verse has to do with the land promise. In Hebrews 11.9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise. He's a sojourner, though. He doesn't own the land. He lived there in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So they don't own anything. They're just they're benefiting from the uh, fruits of the land and God's blessing, but there's no ownership as of yet. That's all future. And so Isaac, Jacob, and Abraham are then summarized together as the heirs uh, of the same promise. And that's that key word, promise, which is used 13 times in, in Hebrews, five times in Hebrews 11. So that tells us that this is a key concept in this chapter of a future focus on a future fulfillment. So there's promise, inheritance, and the idea of a reward. All of these are interconnected. And his the, the focus for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was on a future reality, one that they could not see. So their faith is evidence of something not seen, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They had not seen it. They have little knowledge of that. And so it, the, the passage just focuses on their, the way a future promise shaped their present reality. Now, that's the same thing for all of us. We need to make our decisions today in light of eternity because eventually there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. We will be rewarded, receive an inheritance, that will then be our portion on into the kingdom and on into eternity so that the decisions that you and I make today shape what's going to happen with us in the millennial kingdom and what's going to happen on into eternity. The, the decisions we make, our disobedience and obedience, are not just factors that affect today, but they have eternal consequences. We'll come back and look at uh, continue with Sarah in verse 11 next week. Father, we thank you for this time this evening to study these things, and we pray that you would uh, challenge us, encourage us, help us to think about the decisions we make, think about eternity, and to be conscious of the fact that the decisions we make today have ongoing consequences on into the millennium and on into eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.